chapter 15. This is our sixth message and we'll pick up this morning at verse 50 and go through to the end of the chapter. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Trust God will add his blessing to his word this morning. By way of introduction, I would like to read an article that was written by an unknown author and uh, John MacArthur is quoted in his commentary. So allow me to read this. I thought this was a good way to introduce this message this morning. And the article goes like this. There is a preacher of the old school but he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, he calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has not remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name is death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday everyone will be his sermon. Now this may be a rather glum way you might think to introduce this sermon, but I'm sure you will appreciate its reality to every one of our lives, right? Old man death, as I've said before, is always lurking and we all face that reality every day. Every single person bears his image, both physically and spiritually, 
That is, we are cut off from God and condemned and we face death. And as we're told in Hebrews 9 and 27, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this comes the judgment. So out of this we can say that death for the unbeliever should be, and sadly it's not, but it should be a fearful thing as it is a non-return ticket to eternal judgment and hell. It should be a fearful thing because of that. But not so for the believer, praise God. Not so for the believer, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because death for them, for that person, for the believer, merely begins a miraculous, timeless and a wonderful journey where body and soul will be reunited in heaven. I'm hanging out for that. And as someone has once said, because of this victory that we have over death, we as Christians do not fear the undertaker, but we hope and look for the uppertaker. Amen? This is our hope. This is the, the true hope of the church, the true church of Jesus Christ. And this is what the section of scripture is all about that we've read this morning. What Paul has done in this chapter so far is he has, is he has taught and proved that, that because Jesus Christ arose from the grave, we also too shall arise. Him, that's the Lord, being the first fruits of them that slept or have passed away. We have that in verse 20 of this chapter. And he's, and he's spoken of, of the benefits and the plan of the resurrection. And last week we saw the resurrection explained in that our bodies will be changed to suit the supernatural living that we're all going to enjoy every believer. But here we are given further revelation. What Paul does here is he adds to the previous. He speaks not only of those who have died, but also of those believers who are alive on earth when this miraculous resurrection, this transformation takes place. We do not have all the details revealed in this text. Actually, you need to go to First Thessalonians chapter 4, particularly from verses 13 to verse 18, to get more details on this miraculous event that we're reading about here in this section of Corinthians. And as we think about this, be encouraged because this is just not here for your information. It's here so that we might be encouraged to live and serve the Lord in the right manner. And so the first text, the point I've got here is the supernatural change in verse 50 to 53. A bit of a re-emphasis of what we had last week, but it's clearly stated that our bodies as we know them now will not be the same bodies we have in heaven. Will not be the same. Paul states here that flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Even Jesus taught that. You know, when the the smart aleck tried to trick him and says, "Oh, about the the um, about marriage. When brother, brother when a wife died, the next brother marries, and the next brother they went through the whole seven. And and Jesus said, "Don't be ridiculous. You don't even know the scriptures. There will be no marriage in heaven. So there's not going to be a 
flesh and blood in heaven. Our flesh and blood bodies as we have now, they will not be so. They'll be changed. And he expands this further by saying, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, the Lord is not going to come along and just patch up these old bodies and make them a little bit more presentable. No, he's not going to do that. We're going to have something brand new here. You'll be hanging out for that. Um, Dawn and Kevin and I am, you know, we're feeling the age and pains and Karen with her hip and Benji with his knee and, you know, we, we get there. Well, I'm hanging out for a brand spanking new one in every sense of the word. And so what he does is he re-emphasises what he's taught in verses 35-49 and, and where he tells us that our bodies as we have now, they are on a downward spiral to the grave. And we prove that by we getting old and sick and so death is inevitable. And so these bodies that we have are made for earth dwelling. That's what they're made for. Certainly not for eternal heaven. But there is a great change coming, folks. A great change. At the resurrection, the bodies of the believers, no matter what state of decomposition they have fallen into, they will be raised with a brand new body that is suited for heaven's environment. That's what's going to happen. The transformed, imperishable body will be very different in makeup, but as we saw last week, but we will still have some identity with that perishable body we had before we died. Just like the seed that dies. Remember we talked about that? The corn seed or the wheat seed. It completely dies but it sends up, a corn will only send up a corn plant, a wheat will only send up a wheat plant and nothing else. And so we will still have identity. But now in verse 51 Paul gives us new revelation. New revelation. He tells us what he calls a mystery. Before you get too carried away, whenever the word mystery is mentioned in the New Testament, it always carries the meaning of God's truth that always has been and always was there, but has not yet been revealed, but now he is going to reveal it. And that's what Paul does here. It's not something witchery or or mystical. No, no, no. It's truth revealed that's never been made known before. And so Paul here anticipates a question coming from the Corinthians. He anticipates it. And the question he anticipates is, what about believers who are still alive when this so-called miraculous resurrection, this supernatural change takes place? What about them? Yes, you've told us about those who have died, but what about any who still may be alive? Good question, right? Well, Paul in answer gives an assurance that make no mistake about it, change will take place. He wants to re-emphasise this. Because remember, the Corinthians doubted the resurrection in a bodily form because of their nurture and Greek mythology and culture, etc. And so he gives this answer, but not only for the saints who have died, but also for those who are alive at this given point in God's program. This is where he says, we will all. See that there in the text? We will all be changed. Not might be, will all be. What this means, folks, to us, what this means is that there could be very well some of us here in this little church this morning 
be some of those still alive saints when the Lord performs this miraculous event. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? After all, none of us really want to die. So that's why it's okay to look for the uppertaker and not be woefully wound down with the undertaker. Okay? And uh, that would be an awesome thing if the Lord took us without ever tasting death. This is given further clarity, by the way, as I mentioned that text in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 18. And this is what Paul says here. Listen to me. For the Lord himself, this is how it's going to happen, right? More detail. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Don't you love that? Pretty clear, very clear. So let us be comforted with these words, folks. All believers, all believers will be equally equipped for heaven at the moment of this rapturous event, this rapture, this snatching away, that moment promised to believers of the church age. But if we do die, like many we know have, Loved ones have, spouses have, grandfathers, cousins, whatever, who are in the Lord have died. But if we do die, the only negative, really, when it all boils down, the only negative is it may incur some temporary sorrow for those who are left behind. And it does, right? Because death for the believer is, that's what it is. It causes some temporary sorrow. Why is it only that? Because really, death for the believer is a promise of a supernatural promotion. So we can be assured that the Lord will fulfil a supernatural change in believers, whether we are alive and remain, or have died, or asleep, as the scriptures refer to believers who pass away. And so the next question will be, well, how will a supernatural change take place? You've established, yes, whether, you're, whether a believer has passed away or whether we still remain. How, how is this going to take place? Where, when both the, those who have, are asleep in Jesus or those who have, are still alive, we're all going to be caught up, we'll all be changed, but how? Well, he gives us some details. And the next details, it says there, it's going to be a rapid change. It's going to be, in verse 52, supernaturally quick. I love this. In a moment, it says. The word moment there, this word is used to describe the, the smallest possible conceivable quantity of time. And Paul further emphasises this rapid supernatural change by describing it happening in the, in the twinkling of an eye or the blink of the eye. And so the idea here is self-explanatory here. This is all about being instantaneous. This is not about weeks, it's not about months or days or minutes or seconds, but it's all measured in an eye movement of amount of time. Not in how you measure that. I don't think that's the idea, it's instantaneous. All I know is there will be no time to prepare for then, right? For this 
day of the Lord for this salvation, for this rapture. There'll be no time to prepare then. So that's why now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to prepare for this wonderful event before we die or before this moment comes if we're still alive. Paul also tells us there's going to be some supernatural music being played on this occasion. Benji will love this. Being a muse amongst us. It'll be introduced with a trumpet call. Now some would try and spiritualise this. Some would say, oh, yeah, yeah, right, it's just a spiritual euphemism for something else. But no, no, no. You see how it's written? At the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound. That sounds pretty definite to me. And not something to be taken spiritually. It sounds pretty literal to me. It makes sense to me. So if it makes sense, seek no other sense. Otherwise, it'll be nonsense. The clarion call will be heard by every truly born again believer who will, who will each respond with supernatural speed to the trumpet of God as it is referred to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, how is that going to happen? Don't ask me. That's the Lord's business. He's going to cause every believer from Pentecost to the rapture, as it were, whether they're decomposed, whether they're in ashes, whether they're in the bottom of the sea, whether they're in the grave, whether they're still alive. How is he going to do that? Don't ask me. That's the Lord's business. But we're all going to be changed and transformed and we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Hallelujah. Trumpet is described as the last, by the way. The last. Now this last is not first, second, third, fourth and the last in sequence. No. Why? Because there's no trumpet call yet being given for the church. So how can it be the last if there's none been prior? What I think this last means here is that'll be the last sound that living believers will hear on earth prior being miraculously changed and given bodies fit for heaven. This literal trumpet sound, will it's going to mark the end of an epoch of time in God's calendar which will usher in or will terminate the end of the church age. Some of us have been looking at Acts and we've seen how the church began, the birthday of the church began at Pentecost. Well, believe you me, the Bible is very clear that the church age is going to end. And we're in this church age now where God is calling out a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and it started off in Jerusalem, went to Judea, went to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's been going close on a couple of thousand years now but it will end and it'll end with a trumpet call. Both the living and the dead will be changed. Why? Because change is necessary. Change is necessary. Our perishable bodies, which are limited to Earth's environment, must be made for fit for etern- the eternal kingdom. Our earthly bodies, as we know them now, must be supernaturally changed. They must be. Our redeemed spirits. Listen to this. Our redeemed spirits must be given a redeemed body to dress themselves in. Can I put it that way? where death and decay and the limitations of the flesh, where, where they have no sway or, or effect at all, but we are perfected, not only spiritually, which we are now, but then physically forever. Redeemed spirits and redeemed body. This is what Paul was on about, by the way. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 23. And this is what he says, And only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, that's interesting, isn't it? Another time that the first fruits are mentioned. Whether we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, it's like a deposit, it's like a, like a seal. Same word for an engagement ring when you put on. It's a promise of greater things to come. And so we have the first fruits of the Spirit, he says, even we ourselves, here he is in the flesh, just like we are today, when he read this, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, Waiting eagerly for what? Our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. Awesome. Secondly, the supernatural conquest, and we see this in verses 54 to 56. How true it is that no matter how wealthy, noble, influential, respected, or or maybe notorious, despicable and appalling, or ordinary, and no matter how good living a person might be, no matter what standing in society there is, you have, there is one common denominator. And we know what that is, right? The greatest leveler of all, all men is death. Every person faces it as the greatest lever of humanity no matter what. But folks, for the believer, for the believer, we have a song to sing about death. A song to sing about death. Now this is not a song of mourning either, by the way. Not a song of mourning that we usually associate with death, right? It's a joyful song. But it's only a song that the believer can sing about death joyfully. Because the great enemy, this is why we can sing it joyfully, because the great enemy, death, that confronts us all as a result of Adam's sin that we reflect in our bodies and and the sin which we have perpetuated in our life, has been beaten. Our foe has been vanquished. When Jesus Christ arose from, from the dead, when his perishable body put on imperishable body at his resurrection, when his mortal body put on immortality, he broke the power of death for those who believe him. Hence no longer a master over us because death is no longer a master over him. Even though death for the believer still has some bite, can we say. And it has, hasn't it? We all know loved ones in the Lord who have died. And it's horrible. It bites us. It causes grief as we experience the loss. It divides families. It breaks love relationships that have been many times there for decades. Death still does all those painful things. But in a coming day, folks, we as believers are going to rejoice as victors like never before. It's good now to think about the fact that, yes, the grave is not the final resting place and, and they're safe in Jesus and, and absent from the body and present with the Lord, but one day their bodies and spirits will be reunited and we'll all be changed. It's good now, but it's going to be a whole lot better soon. A whole lot better. In other words, we don't know nothing yet. 
on the day of that transformation. Because when Jesus Christ returns, this perishable will have put on imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come the victory song. Then will come this victory song. The song that we can sing in anticipation now, but then we will sing it like never before because the power of death will be physically and visually broken. Death's shackles will be smashed as death yields to the supernatural power of God. Yes, clothed in righteousness now, save for eternity, safe in the hollow of God's hand. Yes, we are. But then we'll be clothed also in a physical heavenly body. It could be that the saints who have died, it could be that the saints who have died will rise in their immortal and imperishable bodies and sing tauntingly at old man death. Oh death, where is your victory? It could be. It also could be that those who are alive and remain, that may be us, who have not tasted the sting of death, will also sing tauntingly this victory song. Oh death, where is your sting? What a song of victory it will be, folks. What a song of victory. Of course, death is reality because we're all sinners. We know that, right? That's what verse 56 thinks, very plain. The sting of death is sin. In other words, the rule and reign of death is activated by the power and presence of sin. Old man death, as it were, just imagine, just think about this. Old man death, as it were, has employed sin to mark us for eternity. Death is the master. Sin is the, is the servant that marks us. Romans 5.12 says that, by the way. This is what it says. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. But we might ask, but who determines and who says what sin is? The answer is, as we have here, the law. The law of God gives a standard of righteousness and unrighteousness. Perfected in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, of course. If you want to look at sinlessness and perfection, you look at Christ. And for those who are ignorant of this law, for those who have never heard or opened the scriptures or never heard the gospel, Paul has an answer for them too in Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. He says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In other words, the Gentiles, those who are ignorant of the law, are a law to themselves. How can that be? This is how it can be. In that they show the work of the law, what law? God's law. In that they show the work of the law written where? Written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing them or or else defending them. In other words... If a person has never opened the scriptures or heard the gospel, they still have the law of God within them because they have a conscience. They know what is right and what is wrong. In other words, no person is without excuse. All are sinners. 
We know this either from God's word or our conscience, which is written in our hearts. This is the power of sin. This is what makes sin so prevalent and so real. You know, if there was no conscience and no law of God, sin would not be an issue. It would be ordinary. There would be no conscience. There would be no restraining. But it's powerful because the law of God dictates the terms of righteousness and unrighteousness. And because of this present sinful state that we are all in, death is inevitable and it can deal a fatal and eternally damning blow. But when sin in our lives is dealt with, that's an awesome thought, isn't it? When sin in our lives is dealt with, in other words, when it's removed, when it's pardoned, when it's forgiven, the result is that death has no claim upon us. Death has lost its power. It has no victory. We are freed from its power. Why? Because Jesus Christ, listen to this, because Jesus Christ has become our sin bearer. He paid the full price that God demanded against our sin on the cross of Calvary. Yes, he was stung by death for sin, our sin on our behalf, and it's only those who believe and trust in his work and in his person and that way alone, no way else for salvation, can ever, ever be cleansed and pardoned and forgiven for all sin forever. Be very, very clear on that, folks. Do you all wholeheartedly stand rock solid and believe in this? I ask this because it's, I meet people from time to time and they say they're Christians and, and soon after the conversation, I'm not judging, but I'm ascertaining, no, this person has missed the boat, they've missed the mark. They believe things mentally, they understand what I'm saying and what the Bible says, but personally they do not trust and obey what the Bible says and what God has done through Jesus Christ. They haven't committed their lives themselves to this wonderful plan of salvation. Say, do you believe in this? I trust you do. And thirdly, we have a natural response. A natural response. You see this in verses 57, verse 58. Up until now, it's been God's work, right? And what an awesome work he's got to do. But now, a natural response referring to our response. The Apostle Paul here writes from his own responsive heart as he takes in the grandeur of this victorious moment that he is anticipating and look forward to. Apostle Paul's body is in the grave now. Whatever it'll be, dust and mashes or whatever, it doesn't really matter. The spirit of the Apostle Paul is with the Lord Jesus, fully conscious and everything. But one day the Apostle Paul's body is going to rise with us. And his body and his spirit will be united for heavenly environment. But he responds to this wonderful anticipated moment. And God's whole redemptive plan, including this supernatural resurrection, it demands, folks, it demands a response from us as well. I well remember, forgive me for using my wife and myself as an illustration again here, when my wife delivered into the world five children. Believe you me, that was a happy moment equal to none. 
Like it is for most parents. Many here today can vouch for that. The joy, the delight, the elation on such an occasion is unique as finally that brand new baby, that brand newborn is in your arms and that child is your son or your daughter. For us as parents, the natural thing for to do was to be thankful. We first gave thanks to God for this brand new child that he had given us to nurture into adulthood. And we also in our thankfulness thanked the nursing staff, the doctor or the midwife for their part in this delivery. We made sure we sought them out and thanked them. Sometimes we gave them chocolates and flowers as an expression of thankfulness for their part in this. That's what you do, right? Folks, how much more should we be thankful to God, the great physician, for the delivery of our mortal, perishable flesh and blood bodies from their natural bondage to the victory and liberty of bodies that are immortal and imperishable? How much more? Suited for eternal living, how much more should we be thankful We know and assure that this will happen because Jesus Christ on our behalf has already given us victory over sin and death, right? So the next great exchange, can we say, will be when these natural bodies take on a heavenly body and that's what the Apostle Paul was looking forward to and that's what we are waiting for too, I hope, right? Now if we really believe this and are living in the light of this glorious future. If we're really living in the light of this glorious future, surely we would be thankful. We will dwell and we will be dwelling on this wonderful, unique, supernatural moment that begins our heavenly living, so to speak, and we will be those who are bowed in thankfulness to God often. I really hope you do that. That's your prayers. Some people struggle to pray. I don't know what to pray. Well, here's a subject of interest for you and it should be right at the top top of the list kind of thing. Your public prayers and your private prayers should encapsulate this thankfulness for the supernatural life to be given to us. That's a great topic of prayer to thank God for, right? Might take up some more of the time where we're always asking for things. How about thanking God for what He not only has given to us, but what He will give to us? There's also another way that we need to respond to this wonderful truth. Paul highlights this by beginning in verse 58 with the word therefore. What's the word therefore? It's owing to what has already been spoken. In other words, in the light of this wonderful truth, if you really believe it, respond in a way that demonstrates the reality of your faith. That's what we've got to do. That's what the word is there for. And so he specifically addresses his beloved brethren. Notice that word? This is a term of endearment, a term of, of close association and intimacy. It kind of expresses, by the way, the affection that any pastor or elder should have towards his people. Beloved brethren, 
And he appeals to them. He appeals to them and urges them to demonstrate their faith and thankfulness to God by being what? First of all, by being steadfast and immovable. You see that? By being steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In Paul's appeal here, he has in mind that believers respond with steadfastness and being immovable. These words are similar in meaning in that we ought to be firmly fixed people. Completely settled for the duration. That's what it has in mind. Actually, um, the word has the idea of being seated, sitting on a seat. And so this rock solid description, of course, it doesn't refer to sitting on a literal seat, but it Speaking about our understanding being firmly and settled on the, un, on the truths of Scripture in the Gospel. Our faith in God and the, and the promises that He's made to us. We are to be firmly settled and fixed on this, immovable. And as we think of that, it completely crashes the idea of being on the move where our convictions and faith are up for grabs to any new idea that might come along, right? And there's heaps of new ideas in the religious realm out there, folks. They come at us wave after wave, and not outside of necessarily the orthodox, but even in our circles of evangelicalism, there's wave upon wave upon wave, and might I say, most of them come from America. As I said before, all the good and all the bad stuff comes from America, it seems. But be careful about these new waves of, of doing stuff. You know what I'm talking about. Go down to Kurong and just go to most of the bookshelves there and you'll see this kind of stuff. It completely opposes so many self-styled Christians today who are foolishly tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. There's Ephesians 4.14. It completely opposes that, being immovable and established. I heard a pastor once give his reason why their church does not have a statement of faith. And then he went on to say, even my preaching, he said, I only give numbers of views, I'm never dogmatic about anything, so that people can choose for themselves which way they want to go. You know, I, I can imagine that church would be playing musical chairs all the time, you know. And that, that, they certainly wouldn't be immovable and steadfast. That's not what our response to the Lord should be. We're called to be steadfast, seated, firmly fixed, immovable on the truths of teaching of Scripture. There is no room for any of us to be moving away from the will of God by having a Casual and soft attitude toward his promises. No rim at all, folks. We will always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is how we will show that we have thankful hearts, by the way. You'll know, wow, have I got a thankful heart toward the Lord? Have I really? How can I measure that? How can I measure that I have a thankful heart to the Lord? This is how. You'll be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Folks, thankful Christians are serving Christians. The word always there indicates that being a thankful believer is one who is 
not merely a Sunday-only Christian. You know what I mean by that. Rather, he or she is one who is, I like to say, a second-mile Christian. That is, one who abounds. That is, he goes further or she goes further than what is his or her call of duty. Or, or one who tirelessly gives him or herself to what? What do they give themselves here? What does the text say? The work of the Lord. You see that? It's not your work. It's not the new community church's work. The work of the Lord. You see, folks, if you think doing what you do can be done with any kind of attitude and it still will be a work of the Lord, you are sadly mistaken. Whether it's teaching Sunday school, whether it's on the sound desk back there, whether it's serving at communion, whether it's serving coffee prior and after, uh, at the workplace, whatever. This is the Lord's work. And if it is not done as unto the Lord with willingness, love and humility, you might as well stop right now. Because, this is the reason, because in the coming day, your service and my service will be judged as to its value. Not to my measurement, but to the Lord's measurement. My attitudes will be scrutinized. My willingness, all those kind of things that we come into it, it will be looked at. And the Lord will class them as either wood, hay and stubble and they'll be burned up. In other words, a total waste of time. Or they'll come forward as gold, silver and precious stones and the servant of the Lord will receive a reward. First Corinthians chapter 3. But what a great comfort and encouragement it is knowing that serving faithfully in the work of the Lord will never be in vain. You know that? It's hard sometimes, isn't it? Going on and on and on. And, and you don't seem to see any fruit. You don't seem to see any response. Cold nights, you go on. You come to the prayer meetings. You, you come to the preaching of the word. And, and you come to serve the Lord by even just your attendance to encourage one another. And why am I doing this? You're doing it for the Lord. And you can be rest assured that that work done faithfully will never be in vain. The Lord takes note of that. It will never be a futile waste of time like Steve has been bringing out to us from Ecclesiastes. It won't be like a puff of wind that's here and gone under the scrutinizing eyes of the Lord. It will prove itself. And sometimes the work of the Lord will prove itself down here. God in his grace allows us to see it. But one thing, if it don't see it down here, all will be revealed in the resurrection. Amen? All will be revealed in the resurrection. May we be encouraged to consider more of this glorious resurrection and learn more and more to respond in thankfulness and faith.